1: Welcome back to Burned by Books. I'm your host, Chris Holmes. In this week's episode, number four, I'll be bringing you Summer Reading, Part One. This is an undeniably strange time to be hosting a summer reading episode. Strange already in the age of corona, when the banalities of a life lived at home don't seem to match with the summery imaginary But strange perhaps to the point of vulgar to beckon summer's leisure time hours when protests continue in cities all over the world seeking justice not just for George Floyd murdered by police in Minneapolis but for the brutalization of black communities by the very people charged to protect them. This is a time for solidarity and action and the languidness of summer reading feels incongruous to that urgent need. Despite my hesitations, it is also clear to me that the power of reading and the possibility for books of all kinds to be a different form of a clarion call to know the world differently is following in the wake of these brave and powerful protesters. A brief glance at the New York Times nonfiction bestsellers this week reveals a sea change, a move definitively away from the ghastly pseudo-histories of Bill O'Reilly and the ready-made, factory-produced claptrap of James Patterson, to a list entirely made up of black intellectuals writing to instruct, to rally, and to save lives via a moral reckoning with white supremacy. It is shocking and hopeful to see titles like White Fragility, and How to Be an Anti-Racist on the bestseller list. For this first of two summer reading episodes, I'm foregoing my normal book talk in favor of two interviews, the first with Bob Prohl, author of A Hundred Thousand Worlds and The Nobody People, and second, author and education director at Live Arts in Charlottesville, Miller-Susan. Each interview features a substantial list of recommendations tailored to the peculiarity of this summer and to our immediate reading needs. I think you'll find each guest to be brilliant, thoughtful, and engaging of the struggle we see unfolding before us. As always, the recommended books will be on our website, burnedbybooks.com, and this week, I'm asking you to consider purchasing one or more of the recommended books from a Black-owned bookstore somewhere around the country. I'll provide you various ways to locate the shop nearest to you. These are small, very small, tangential things in the context of the larger struggle, a struggle that needs different kinds of action from each of us. But as committed readers, we can speak with with the books we read and the stores we purchase them from. A note this week about the recording quality. Both interviews, unfortunately, have audio flaws that I hope won't distract from the excellence of my guests. I have every intention of solving these amateur issues before the next episode, which will be Summer Reading Part 2. Thank you so much for being here. And let's get to our interviews. Welcome back to Burned by Books. It's my great pleasure to welcome Bob Proll to the show. Bob is most recently the author of two great novels, A Hundred Thousand Worlds and The Nobody People. Bob has at various times worked at one of the country's great independent bookstores, Buffalo Street Books, run a beloved trivia night in Ithaca, where he is well known as a DJ, a bartender for the very thirsty, and a general advocate and ombudsman for all things literary. I first met Bob when he was programming director at Buffalo Street Books, but soon after he told me he was leaving the store to work on a novel. I've had this conversation before. Enough people have told me a similar story for me to know that the usual outcome is not, in fact, a novel. Needless to say, Bob, in rather quick order, produced one of the most meaningful mother-son relationship novels of recent times. And that's not blowing smoke, It's a genre that I love, and A Hundred Thousand Worlds, the story of a boy and his fading actress mother road-tripping through Comic-Cons on the way to maybe reunite with his estranged father, holds a special place in my heart. His second novel, The Nobody People, what promises to be the first of a duology, went more directly at genre, but with a buzzsaw. Cutting away the presumptions of a white heroic protagonist at the heart of that most hallowed of fantasy subgenres, a school for kids with extraordinary powers. As Bob has said in previous interviews, he was tired of reading about himself, characters that look and sound like him, and that sci-fi and fantasy were ripe for new kinds of representation. And out of that fatigue came the desire to merge his love of comic books and the novel form, but with unexpected voices and new kinds of heroes. It's so nice to have you on the show.
0: Thanks, Chris. It's nice to be here.
1: So can I ask what the status is of book two of the duology? And would you give us a little preview of what to expect? Uh, Well, book two is is done. It is... uh proofs are in the editing's done oh that's fantastic Uh, um i did the proofs on it sort of in the first couple weeks of lockdown it
2: was it was nice it was actually like a manageable uh amount and type of work you know with all the other sort of mental static that was going on at the time um so that'll be out uh i want to say september
1: 1st oh so uh, soon oh that's that's fabulous uh, and as far as what the book is about, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to talk about it without giving away the ending of, uh, of the Nobody People. Um, but this book takes about a, a seven year jump forward from the end of that book and, and follows, uh,
0: some of the same characters. Um, we introduced one new main character into the book, um, in sort of the world that gets created in, in the wake of, uh, of what happens at the end of the nobody people. And, you know, it was always, this was always really one long story in my head. Um, when I was, when I was drafting the first book, parts of this second book, this sort of forward jump were interspice interspliced into it. And, um, to, to have my like one name droppy moment here, we, we had some film interest in it when it was still in draft and I ended up talking to Ron Howard, um, oh, gosh. <laughs> of, of optioning it. And it was like a really weird, overwhelming conversation. <laughs> and uh, he's, he had read, what was most troubling about it was that he had read basically 200 pages of a first draft, which is not normally something that anybody gets to see. Like, even my, mm. agent, my writing group would see something more polished. And now I was talking to
1: Ron Howard about stuff they had a, a, written very quickly. And he said, Well, how how do you think you would solve this problem of how to film this story that cuts back and forth? And I I said, I don't I don't know Ron Howard in that kind of year job. <laughs> and uh, he got me thinking and it and made me straighten out the chronology. And that's when it in my head really broke into these two books. Um, as sort of because we were thinking I knew it was gonna be big and I was like, maybe it has to be a trilogy, but that was when the, the two book structure really came about and it was before and after what happens at the end of, of Nobody People. I, I now think of Ron Howard as having an archive of every speculative book in the world that he can just draw on with his mind before it is complete. I hope, <laughs> I hope that is true. <laughs> um, it
0: was at a time that, he was, that his company was clearly pursuing a lot of sci-fi projects, and um, I, th- I think they did end up buying a lot of books that had not come out yet. Um, none of which have
1: like, moved into production or anything. But, yeah, it was strange. It That's was ex- It was one of the odder
0: conversations that I've ever, uh, ever had to
1: have. That's very exciting, though. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Nobody People, and, and I promise not to spoil it, but Nobody <laughs> People is is both full of social commentary about a violent society that strikes out at the differently abled racial and religious difference and which is both our own world and another. But it also, by its very nature, is a commentary on the whiteness and maleness of publishing and in particular of within the sci-fi and fantasy genre would you talk a little bit about your own experience as a lifelong reader of what used to be called genre fiction and about how you decided to pursue a fantasy novel that would break the tacit rules for how such characters should look and act?
0: Oh, sure. I mean, I think, you know, you can grow up reading genre fiction and never read a non white male author. You could grow up reading exclusively the sci-fi fantasy canon, um, which I'm, you can't see this because it's audio, but I'm putting in little scare quotes, um, and and never stray outside that that demographic, um, and what what that does. I mean, obviously there are social implic implications of that, but there are story implications too, and it means that like when you meet that white male protagonist, you you know that they're kind of safe. They have this like structural protection around them, which. Mm-hmm. Um, which takes a lot of energy out of the story immediately. You know, you can point to this person and say, like, well, I know that they'll be there at the end. Um, and, you know, I, I think, for example, that's, like, one of the things that the Game of Thrones books does that's interesting is to, to break that trust. Um, so I started thinking about what that would what that would mean. But I, I also think that what it does for, you know, we talk about diversity in publishing and we talk about diversity in uh at a character level and uh, we talk about representation and what it means and how important it is for people who are not uh, white cishet males to see themselves in heroic roles. But I think we don't talk often enough about what reading diversely means for white cishet males. Mm-hmm. I think you know what we what a book that centers that experience asks of a white male reader is identification with the hero, right? Like, you put yourself into that role very easily. Um, But what that doesn't ask of you is a kind of empathy of sort of moving across any kind of boundary or or amount of difference. And I I think the result is, and and, you know, I, I sort of, especially online, I exist in a lot of fandoms, and I'm in those conversations around superhero comics and around sci-fi books. And obviously, as I think we all know, there are toxic, really toxic elements within those. And I think largely that comes down to this sort of, this failure of, of empathy, of the failure of a certain kind of white male reader to ever read outside of their own experience, to ever think of themselves as anything other than the hero. Um, so then when I was working on this book, I flipped... Back into that and really wanted to think about what it meant what kind of white male adult that produced uh, whether it's the sort of like raw toxic kid that you see with, with Owen Curry who's one of the sort of villains of the book or the problems that you see with, uh, with Avi Hirsch who's one of the protagonists of the book but can't see himself as anything other than the center um, even when the center has moved well beyond him Hmm.
1: And that this produces really negative results and and ends up really harming uh the people that he cares about yeah that that's one of the things I love about the novel that it it, it manages in subtle ways to both take on that very direct and and raw kind of uh, racism and distrust of otherness and also the much more subtler you know dare i say kind of uh liberal um microaggressions failure to see yourself out of the center of all plots and narratives and does so with a, with a really steady hand. And I think hearing you describe now how the necessity is not just that we will um, obviously want to see more characters that are, are not following that normal order. Um, but also that the, the reading canon for um White cis males needs to be different, and that it may, in fact, aid in generating a different kind of empathy in the reading process itself. I mean, yeah, the,
0: exactly. And, and you know, I say that not to at all downplay the importance of representation,
1: mm-hmm. um, because representation is huge. But I think a lot of white readers look at
0: expanding diversity, especially within genre, and say, "Well, okay, this has this really has no net positive for me as a reader." Um, or or white male you know, writers say, well, this is, you know, imagining themselves in a sort of zero-sum game.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and what you're saying, obviously, is put in such a, a stark contrast by the last few weeks and the murder of George Floyd. And it, it is clear to me that conversations about books have, like, done a 180. I was looking, and I mentioned this in the intro, I was looking at the New York Times bestseller list and the nonfiction list is almost exclusively books that are both historically minded, but also very interested in pushing, um, an understanding of anti racist anti-racist politics, anti-racist living. Um, and that flip seemed to happen, uh, overnight. And, but I think what's sometimes missed is that that one kind of nonfiction Reading, while really important, misses the fact that black artists in the literary world and elsewhere, artists of color, um, are shut out in all different kinds of ways. And their absence says as much as um, their presence now on these nonfiction lists and that we're not reading fiction and sci-fi um, by authors of color and that that's, there's a very deliberate way that that has been set up. Um, and I think that your, that your book and, and your way of thinking of things is in line with this particular moment for literature. Um, well, I, think, I think what this moment, you know, this, this moment where uh, nonfiction, particularly by black academics, uh, is, is selling really well, it,
0: it's kind of mirrored in what um, writers of color are allowed to write when it comes to fiction. Hmm. There's a sort of higher commodity price on displaying pain in fiction, uh, for a white audience. And there are limits to, um, you know, the perceived market for like black and authors of color expressing joy, expressing humor when what, uh, the white audience seems to want is this sort of like, give us the brutal meat of, of your experience. Um,
1: and I think there's a, there's a danger to that and the conversations right now are, Some of them are around how do we move past that? Yeah, I think that's really well said. The murder of George Floyd made it clear, at least at this moment, to white communities yet again what is crystal clear every second of the day for black communities and has been for hundreds of years that American society was constructed for and is currently violently regulated by white people. Publishing has had its own mini reawakening um, with the publishing of American Dirt, a uh, controversial and some say de- degrading, a look at Mexican immigrants attempting to come to the United States, written by a white woman who was given an enormous advance on the manuscript. What's your sense of how publishing in general is dealing with its race problem, and has your own experience in publishing given you a particular vantage on the process and its pitfalls? Are the old gatekeepers reforming in any way that's visible to you?
0: You know, I I think. I think first of all, thinking of it in terms of gatekeepers already has us in the wrong place. But like, you know, to speak directly to the American Dirt
2: issue, that's the same editor that acquired the Help at a huge, uh, uh, huge advance like the exact same editor. Oh my goodness. Um, This is not, it's not
0: a new problem and it's not something that we're suddenly reckoning with. I think what's interesting now is that we're having that conversation at an economic level and it's an economic level like across the board, Um, whether it's the sort of the publishing paid me hashtag where we're discussing and comparing advances. and, And that's a big thing to ask what you're, you know, what you're getting paid and what we're seeing. And it's not, surprising to anyone although to me the magnitude of it was shocking is that the authors who look like me uh get larger advances and get larger second chance advances like sometimes by factors of 10 than our counterparts uh than our, our far more talented authors of color and um you know it comes down so that comes down to looking at what do advances mean um, how does an advance function, and it's it's essentially a bet uh, as to how well a book is going to do, and it's a bet that requires a certain amount of um, a confirmation up and down the board. Like you need you need a passionate editor that's going to acquire that book and take it to an acquisition board on your behalf, and uh, and get that number for you. You need an agent that's going to advocate for you. Um, you need a, a publisher. and um, and a sales department and everybody that's going to get on board. And if a lot of the people in that chain are white, uh, it's going to be harder to get consensus around books by authors of color. Um, So that's I think that's been a big part of the conversation now, and that's been really um, heartening to see us talking in terms of numbers. The other thing at the sort of far other end of that is talking about internship payment. In publishing and the fact that the people who can afford to start in um, tend to be people with with means and tend to be uh, tend to be white so if publishing wants to to change they have to start changing at both ends and they have to start changing at the ground level where people are being brought in uh, and in in a way that's sustainable like if you can't afford to live in new york city on a pittance you're not going to get that entry-level job at a publisher and those are the people that graduate into editorial positions into higher-up sales positions who are ultimately making these decisions
1: we um, see that so okay. often in the uh, english and writing departments where i teach the um th- what is offered by way of a supposedly liver living um honorarium almost, I wouldn't call it a salary, um uh is impossible without substitute salary, which would you would assume uh in this case would come from parents. And that just shuts the door in really ninety percent of people's faces.
0: Yeah, and I, I think, you know, as far as switching back to the the idea of advances, um, the higher the higher advance numbers come from consensus. Um, you know, when my first book sold to Houghton Mifflin, um, which is not where it ended up publishing, but that's not really here. Um, the reason that it got a six figure deal was that it got, it was a consensus vote from, uh, their acquisition board. But like I said, you know, getting back to that idea of like, Oh, there's a market for books that express the experience of a person of color as long as it is in terms of pain or systematic oppression. Mm -hmm. Um, the consensus around a black, uh, a a black author's book or a a book by an author of color is going to be lower. There's also um, the term comp or comparable title, um, which means that uh, a book that is similar in some way to the book that you've written. So Mm -hmm. when my first book was out on submission, uh, it got looked at by um, a certain press and like you said, it's a book about a mother and her son traveling cross country and uh, one publishing house said, well, this, we really like this, but we just bought a book that's about a grandfather and his granddaughter traveling across country, so that is too close in terms of comp, so we're going to pass on your book. <laughs> um, what that means for authors of color very often is uh, editors and editorial boards coming back and saying, we already have a book by a Hispanic author, so we're going to pass on this one.
1: Like that is the level of comp you need. Wow. Um, to get past that's incredible. It's disheartening, um, even as you are showing us a, a perhaps more optimistic opening in that conversation. But how limiting that has been, clearly, for so long. And it's—I mean—I think we've seen this in movies and and television in the way in which um, a, uh, for example, a black. Uh, comedy must speak to certain concerns, ideas, and have a comp of its own. And uh, I I honestly didn't know that about publishing, and I find it um, shocking, but also not shocking, um, given the way that every aspect of our society seems to operate with those kinds of higher hurdles and barriers uh, immediately for uh, writers and thinkers of color. I mean, this leads. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: I don't mean to say that it's I don't mean to say that it's universally true, but I can say that, like, I'm never asked to write about whiteness, Mm -hmm. whereas I know authors who've had books get a pass because they are not writing directly enough about their uh, their experience as a person of color. And that that would never be asked of of a white author. Like, can you make it whiter?
1: Yeah, uh, Perci- Percival Everett has an extraordinary novel, Erasure, um, which basically satirizes in the most brutal and ra- razor sharp way exactly this expectation that comes to, um, to Black authors. And it is a, it's a brutal read and in, in Everett's typical way, a masterful one. But I, this leads me to the aspect of this particular episode, which is meant as a summer reading episode, um, and which I'm asking four different, uh, writers and thinkers to, talk a little bit about a particular genre that they think deserves our attention right now. And I wanted to ask you, because of what I know about your reading habits and your expertise, um, maybe if you would talk a little bit about uh, black and writer of color, science fiction, fantasy, any of the things that maybe we used to call genre fiction, but have now blended wonderfully into what we just think of as literature. Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, like I said, there is,
0: uh there is a sort of established white canon in these in these genres and um, And I, I think we're moving away from that and we're expanding on that. Um, I think with sci-fi particularly, where you start is Octavia Butler, um, who is just a fantastic uh, a fantastic author, a huge, huge influence on me when I was writing uh, the nobody people and somebody people, uh, the <laughs> pattern master books were all over my head, uh, in this, in that one. And with Butler, um, depending on where you want to start, there is Kindred, which is a standalone time travel book. It's sort of like concept sci-fi, but, uh, there's not a lot of baggage and mechanisms to work through. Um, it's a really good, like social sci-fi book. Um, there's the Patermaster series, which is, if you want, like a big, weird, sprawling sci-fi epic, uh, the Patermaster books are great.
1: Uh, and there's the Parable books. Um, Parable of the Summer is like the most terrifying prophetic book for the moment that we're in right now that one could possibly imagine. Um, so, yeah, uh, Butler is a great place to start. When, uh, when was she writing again? Is she still alive? No, she passed away, I believe, in 2010. Okay. Um, I might have that.
2: It may be slightly earlier than that. But no, I think 2010 sounds right.
0: Um, the uh, the Parable Books, which is one of the products she was working on when she died, I think the last one came out around 1990. She's been. And again, I, I don't I want to pass myself off as an expert on uh, black sci fi, um, but I, I believe that's about
1: right she has been um showing up more and more in academic syllabi and in um critical writing in in some of the major journals for um for literature professors and i think has you know gained a new sort of um a new place in that uh sometimes tiny canon yeah she is she is very much becoming a, a- more academic canon author i think partly that's because kindred is a really teachable book
0: um but i also think that her her bigger projects are so rich i mean kindred she's very directly addressing like race in america and the parable books same kind of thing but um she does so many different she works in so many different modes that are whether or not they're directly addressing race um are really coming out of her experience as a as a black author um, and it's just just an amazing high concept writer um, the next sort of more classic canonical black sci-fi writer that came to mind was samuel Delaney, um, who's uh who's still with us um, if you and again it kind of depends where you want to start if you want Something like shorter, um, Babel 17 is a really good short novel, has a lot of cool stuff about language. Um, The Monolith from Delaney, like one of the most amazing books I've ever read, and it took me three or four attempts to get through it, is Dahlgren,
2: which is an experimental sci fi novel set in. A somewhat destroyed city in the american midwest in a near future as projected from the mid-70s and it's about race
0: and sexuality and violence and language and it's a it's an amazing book it literally i had tried to read it so many times that when i finally finished it it's about eight or nine hundred pages the book was physically falling apart in <laughs> my hands as i sort of closed in on the ending which if you if you ever read Dahlgren, you'll see is like a really like a very apt metaphor
1: for the experience <laughs> of reading it. Um, but yeah, so Sam Delaney, um, more recently, uh, and a little outside of science fiction, more in the fantasy. Um, I, I know you've read um, Marlon James's most recent book. Um, mm-hmm. Is it Black Leopard, Black Leopard Red Wolf? Red Wolf yeah. I was
0: missing, um, which um, really shows sort of the power of bringing new voices into the, the epic fantasy genre is that you don't have to have these like token echoes over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can tell reading this book that that James has
1: read token up and down, but doesn't feel the need to like reproduce that as a plot structure. Um, and yeah, that's, that's one of those books that, you know, you finish 700 pages and you're like, why do you, what do you mean? I have to wait for the next one. This is nonsense. Um, yeah. It, it really felt like it was him kind of putting a foot down and as a marker and saying, um, I'm here and everyone will be contending with me, um, from here on out, which was, which was pretty wonderful. And having read his other His other fiction, which would have, you know, more classically fallen into literary fiction. It's such a a sort of wonderful sort of both drawing on of some conventions that would be recognizable, but then also bringing in different mythologies and cosmologies and uh, just sort of reawakening the genre in a lot of ways. Exactly. Um, the, The other... Uh,
0: the big two other ones that I wanted to to mention, because they're really directly addressing uh, a canonical author, are um, The City We Became by N.K. Jemison, which just came out a couple weeks ago, and The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor LaBelle. Um, so these are both books that sort of go at H.P. Lovecraft. And, you know, when we talk about there being a white canon in these genres, there's more to it than that you know, you have levels of racism that are built into those genres, whether it's, like, racist uh, portrayals of certain characters in Token, um, whether it's the kind of stuff that we're hearing from a certain other YA uh, fantasy author right now that, when we look back at her books, you can see some of that, uh, some of those bigotries that are there built into the text, um, or whether it's someone, like, Like Lovecraft, who was actively horrifically racist. So, with the ballad "Black Tom" by Victor LaValle and um, "The City Became" by NK Jemison, you again you see these authors that have a really deep and interesting relationship with an author that uh, that has deep-seated racism, and they're addressing it directly. They're taking it head on, and they're making it do. They're making the good things about his. his writing, which there are like, there's amazing stuff in in Lovecraft, and to be able to prize it apart and look at it and look at it in a way
2: that doesn't dismiss or race the the bigotry that is built
0: into it, um, allows them to do really amazing work. Um, I think that one of the things that I loved about The City We Became by by N.K. Jemisin, it's clearly her having so much fun. I, as much as I love the broken earth books, um, they are not necessarily books that you would, you would classify as fun and
1: (laughs) you'd have to have a rather twisted sense of fun. I think,
0: (laughs) I mean, there's a, there's an amazing technical sense of fun, particularly in the first book. Like when that, when the twist in that book pays off, I can like, I get such a a thrill as an author of uh, just like. Realizing how much structural work went into that, but yeah, that's a very particular sense of fun. Um, but the city we became is just—it's uh, just—it's hilarious. Uh, it's dark and funny and like smart and engages
1: with the city of New York in uh, in such a thorough and interesting way. In the way that you can only hate New York if you deeply love New York, and uh, I just—I I, I love the book. And, and again apparently there are two more in that series and I'm just I, like, I time cannot move fast enough. Oh, There's I, so I reasons, didn't realize those, that. Those um, the, the, Way in which she manages a love song, hate song for New York City in that in, in just paralleling each other the whole time, um, such a deep kind of on the ground, street by street knowledge of the city and its neighborhoods. And at the same time, um, a kind of deep broiling anger at the way that um, parts of the city are treated as criminal and monstrous is I mean, it's a miraculous portrait of the city.
0: I also loved that it was a you had a sense of a mythical New York that was not the sort of CBGBs punk scene mythical New York, which I think, you know, maybe this is just my reading lens, but that's a lot of the like the nostalgic dream of New York that I get. Um so really leaning on other um other myths of of the city that uh that used to be there or that is that is slowly being sort of eroded uh, was just really fascinating, really great. Uh, Nadia Korofor, um, amazing, amazing uh, author. Her um, Akata Witch series, particularly, um, Who Fears Death, and uh, the Binti books are all great. Um, I mentioned Victor LaValle's Ballad of Black Tom, but The Changeling by Victor LaValle is one of my favorite books
1: about parenting um, I actually gave it to my father for Christmas um, and his review was, well, that was strange. Um, <laughs> I love that Dexter book. Palmer's uh, version control is
2: a, like a great um, sort
0: of hard sci-fi uh, time travel novel. Uh, the deep by river Solomon, which is, I don't read a lot of mermaid novels, but it is probably the best mermaid novel that I've uh, written. <laughs> you know, the concept is basically that mermaids have, these mermaids have sort of, evolved from slaves that were thrown over uh over the sides of ships uh oh, during wow. passage um and it's a a short sort of elegiac uh book just really really good
1: what an um, incredible concept I think- these are fabulous choices and the ones i don't know i'm going to be seeking out straight away and this week, I'm I'm highlighting some black-owned bookstores in the hopes that folks will start to patronize their their web presences, even if they're not open in their storefront. That they may have online capabilities and would appreciate uh, purchases. And you should look out for these books, which I'll have with links to them on the website, burnedbybooks.com. So, Bob, I wanted to ask what may be an overlapping question. Uh, which is that when you're in writing mode, and you've talked a little bit about this, but who do you go to for inspiration? What's the narrative voice that you want in your head, and whose creative pyrotechnics are a catalyst to your best work? Um,
0: I mean, the the voice thing, the voice that I want in my head is is mine. Uh, so <laughs> I. I will very often shut down on fiction reading if I'm depending on what stage of writing I happen to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now I'm working on something new, so almost all of my reading is research stuff, um, which means a lot of nonfiction. Um, but uh, generally, the, the stuff that I look for is I, I look for stuff that's new, I look for people who are doing things that I can't conceivably do, whether that's sort of technical things or um or prose things or experiential things um so there's nobody that there's there's not really one author or, or a, a short list of authors that i'm like oh i'll just i'll hit up so and so and um it'll get uh, get the wheels turning it's um it's usually trying
2: to find something that's very distant from what i'm working on or or
0: what I might attempt. So um a lot of times I'll I'll go to essay collections, um uh Alexander Cheese uh how to write an autograph biographical novel oh God that thing's amazing. Piece, but, uh, something to pick up and read a couple pages of having having read it all the way through before. I keep a, a copy of um a very large Joan Didion book um just so I can be like daunted by somebody else's prose. <laughs>
1: um uh Hanifa uh music writing is like a good place to start as far as like just the the energy of, of the prose and um and again knowing like I can't do that but it gets me excited about about writing and what it can do and then maybe I can like take that and move it over onto my my stuff what I should have asked you um knowing your encyclopedic knowledge and understanding of all things music is what your, what your playlist is for when you're in a uh, writing mode, <laughs> any, uh, any couple of, uh, albums, songs, or, uh, um, an artist in particular that, that gets you there. Um, I mean, for one thing, I don't, I don't and can't listen to music when I'm actively writing, like when I'm actually at a keyboard and writing. So, um, Sometimes if I have to block out noise, I'll put on like uh, soundtracks or Brian, Eno ambient albums
0: or something without words in it. But beyond that, you know, uh, David Bowie is kind of the, the, the wellspring for me a lot of times. Um, and a lot, a lot of times it comes down to, um, to matching music to a project. You know, one thing that was weird about 100,000 Worlds was that there's no music in it. Like nobody listens to music, nobody mentions music and it was weird to get to the end of the book and realize that I had done that and so so now I've been kind of building that in or at least when I'm particularly in rewrites I'll I'll put together playlists for each section of a book and and try to get something tonal and then it's it's just like that's what I'll play when I'm not directly working on it Um, so like for the somebody people nobody people was a lot of pop music uh, and a lot of like the really energetic indie music that i listened to when i was in my 20s and um then i was i was thinking about their their sort of traveling and road aspects in somebody people and it's like building up playlists of really languid neil young songs and um a lot of uh like Bonnie Prince Billy and is really like almost country, all country kind of stuff, which is not stuff that I've listened to in a long time. But I, that was kind of what I went back to for aspects of that book. But yeah, it, var- it varies a lot from project to project.
1: Well, I hope that there'll be a uh, somewhere existing list of of these playlists when the next couple of books come out. I'll be I'll be looking for them. I wanted to ask you uh, one last question, which is related to the the summer element of the, of the, the episode. And that is, are you reading anything right now that you'd like to suggest for distraction and, and fun in a time that's not particularly fun um, when we might need a bit of an escape? Uh, I, I again, I'm going to say that the Jemison book, which i just finished, um, uh, the city we became, it was, it was really the kind of thing that let me
0: shut everything else, everything else out, and just fall into the, into the text in a way that I hadn't, um, in quite a while. Um, the other one, if, if sci-fi is not your jam, uh, Brick Bennett's vanishing half, which is out. Yes. came out, uh, the end of this month. Um, Rick Bennett is such a, an amazing, uh, writer and plotter. And, uh, you know, the, the mothers was one of my favorite books, just like, taking three characters and sort of moving them around the board and uh, just so deftly. It's like, it's really just, it's like watching somebody who is just out of the gate, a master in her craft, uh, watching her work.
1: And um, The Vanishing Half really expands on the scope of what she's able to do. Um, And yeah, it was a, a really brilliant book. I really loved it. I have it on my nightstand, and I'll move it to next on that recommendation. Well, Bob Prohl, I want to thank you so much for a really energized and um, fascinating interview. Thanks for taking the time with us today.
2: Thanks a lot. Thanks for having
1: me. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Welcome back to Burned by Books. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome Miller Susan to the podcast. Miller is the author of countless hilarious and often de- devastating essays about parenting, theater, and balancing a creative life. She is an actor, director, and theater teacher, and currently she is the education director at Live Arts, a community theater organization in Charlottesville, Virginia. Most importantly, she has at various moments taken on the persona of Miller time at Claw, the Charlottesville Ladies Arm Wrestling Society. Welcome, <laughs> Miller.
3: It's it really it it adds a nice glissando, is that a word to my bio, <laughs> the arm wrestling. It's I haven't done it in a while, but you know, I get to keep that in my bio for years. Forever. Right.
1: It doesn't leave, whether whether you it's want ever it green. to or not. And it's fun to do a sort of deep dive on the web and have that come up so oh, often man. on about you. So
3: my kids are now old enough; they're teenagers to do you know Google searches of us or to do that on their under their own steam. And they're like, "Mom, <laughs> these pictures are real weird."
1: They've got some questions.
3: Yeah. Exactly. Well,
1: at Burn by Books, this only raises your your level of cred <laughs> by many, many factors. Um, it, it is a real joy to have you on, in part because I know you as like one of my favorite readers. Uh, oh. You read so much. Um, you are an omnivore in the truest sense. Um, any genre: literary fiction, essay, YA, sci fi, and fantasy. Um, and you are just read. Reading all the time. Um, And so I'm interested in starting off our conversation, just finding out a little bit from you, what makes a book work for you? Which ones do you keep at it? And which ones do you put down?
3: Well, I want to start by saying that we have for the listening audience, we've had the pleasure of vacationing with your family, a couple of several times over the years and our book conversations are a highlight for me as well. Um, you are also such an omnivorous and great reader and interesting to talk to about what you read. So back at you. (laughs) Um, but I would say that what appeals to me most I I mean, I'm I'm a pretty good reader. Like I was an English major. I can plow through, you know, most things and i read quickly which i think does help i think um people who read more slowly are sometimes a little more um, i don't know they get alienated more easily because they have it's like each word has so much weight and for me i can do the thing where i'm sort of skim 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 let's get to the good part um you could be but, a little less picky yeah <laughs> yeah that's exactly right exactly um but i would say that for me the the key factors of things I consider to be favorite books are strong storytelling. I just I, I like things to have a bit of narrative momentum, usually. I mean, for my favorites, that's what I like. Um, characters I can relate to, which is not always middle-aged white women, but is not not that. <laughs> um, sense of humor is very important to me or whimsy not too much whimsy but a little bit of a skewed perspective um i really like books that have excellent descriptions of food (laughs) like a lot that's like actually a huge element have you read
1: uh, the supper club
3: oh maybe
1: it's um i mean it takes that to um to an nth degree extreme that has a lot of you know both gorgeous writing about food but also like very visceral disgusting writing about food and <laughs> yes food and bodies i do I and... recognize
3: the title yes i did i did read that i just checked it out from the library this winter um because i couldn't resist the title <laughs> and it was super visceral and a little disgusting yes. um but but like a you know, not to seem super deep or anything, but like a Harry Potter level description of food where they have these like reliable favorites that they eat at the feasts and you look forward to the to them eating these things just like the characters do. <laughs> that kind of thing. I just think it's it's a it's a detail that attracts me to a lot of books. Um I also really like great descriptions of nature. Um my 16 year old is finally able to access the pleasures of Anna of Green Gables um, and that series of books I've been begging her to read them for years she's listening to them and that for her has made all the difference um, she like bogs down in our like teeny tiny print series but anyway the descriptions of nature are something that I love about those books and which um, she's been taking great pleasure in as well
1: that seems yeah. to be a book that gets passed on like a legacy and an inheritance and goes from I mean, not to overly gender it, but often from kind of yeah. mother to daughter. But um in any ways within within families and transcending um generations, it has it seems to have that inimicable quality of being able to be passed down.
3: She's a real timeless character. And she has a lot of timeless insights and impulses that um if you're a bookish, nerdy, dreamy, you know, kind of ambivert, you can relate to her. She's very relatable. Um, I taught drama at a all girls middle school, which is actually also where this now 16-year-old went to middle school. And they had to read Anne of Green Gables for summer reading. And so in my brilliance, I was like, I'll do a one-act version of the play in drama. And that will be so fun because I'm sure all of them loved this book as much as I did. And let me tell you, you've never (laughs) seen faces fall to the ground like they did when I was like, we're going to do Anne of Green Gables. I mean, these kids did not... (laughs) find the same magic in this book at all. And it's interesting to me that maybe we should have told them all to listen to it. Um, But for my daughter, that's what's allowed her to finally crack it.
1: I don't know that's um yeah I, I well you never know what seed you've planted that they mm-hmm. will return to at some later point and have the joy that you wished for them even if you are deprived of that vicarious joy. <laughs>
3: yeah. they ended up enjoying being in a play I think um and it was like a, a relatively good way in because of course they were familiar with the story and the characters so they you know could it was some of it did some of my directorial work it made it a little a little easier but anyway it was funny because i expected them to be like yay <laughs> but they they were not like yay <laughs>
1: Students have a way of being not like yay. Um, I want to, um, since you raise theater and plays, I want to talk a little bit about your life in the theater during quarantine. Mm-hmm. Part of your work for Live Arts is uh, directing youth theater. I believe Live Arts project this summer is Lynn manuel Miranda's In the Heights. How yes. is that going to work with social distancing? And Chris
3: Holmes, you are asking a great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of people want to know how we're going to make it work with social distancing and you know, who else wants to know us, but, um, here's the plan as it stands. First of all, may I say the whole like projected speaking and singing indoors, are super spreader activities, oh. big, big <laughs> hitch in our giddy up. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I think our basic attitude as an organization is we are going to have to figure out some kind of plan because this problem is not going away anytime soon. And for us to have viability as an organization, we cannot spend the next year, you know, in a hidey hole. So we've got to figure out uh, not just one plan, but like plan A, plan B, plan C, you know, addendum to plan C Um, as one of my, camp parents, I'm running camps online this summer, said to me, it's like you're building the airplane while you're flying it. <laughs> and it does feel that way. Um oh God. so <laughs> <That's horrible.
2: laughs>
3: what we're planning to do for In the Heights, um, or what we have we the process has started. Um we had the auditions were online. Um so we had people upload we had the choreographer and the music director upload you know, snatches of things to learn. And then we also had kids, um, because it's a teen show, we had them, we suggested all these different places that they could get accompaniment so that when they were recording themselves, they, you know, could use accompaniment that is is free and easy to find on the internet. We worried a lot about accessibility issues. Um, and so we did have a plan in place for people to reach out to us and come to the theater and be kind of like physically distant recorded mm. by one of our staff members, but it didn't end up being an issue. Um, I think because maybe because it's teens and people have phones and we're able to find hotspots and we're able to get the auditions done at least as far as we heard. And we did have a, a pretty good turnout. Um, then we're going to start, our director is actually New York based, <clears throat> um, so we were always going to have a little bit of a an online component to rehearsals um, and we were going to place her with a local family over the summer, which that accommodation is still okay because it's the person's like guest house, so eventually she'll come down and join us from New York, but in the meantime they're starting rehearsals online. Um, both the music director and um, his assistant have been teaching voice lessons and music lessons online all spring, so they have a good sense of kind of how to make that work. And it's actually pretty tricky because as anyone who's tried to sing along with a zoom knows (laughs) there's this lag and you can't, you can't do it in real time. So you have to have the accompaniment on your side to learn it. and It's tricky, but they have a really good sense of how to do it. Um, The choreographer has also been working online in the movement space this spring at her school. So she feels ready to go. And then Performance-wise, what we're planning is um, we're talking to this venue that has outdoor space for like fewer than fifty, um, and each sort of little spot is is potted off from all the other little spots. So there are these big, you know, sort of aisles in the in the audience space that have kind of arrows, um, like which way traffic is supposed to go. And then once you're in your little square, you can have, you know, just like up to four people in your square. So pretty much what people will pay for is like access to a square. And then this
1: is an in person. um, Yeah, we're we're
3: trying to do in person performance in August. Um, And then the performance itself would be like the stage area is is more than ten feet away from where the audience will be sitting, so we'll have to obviously have really good mics. And then we're gonna do like a concert version, um, so it will be a little shorter, and there won't be touching, and all everyone will stand far away from each other, and the band will be I've, far away I've from the other. I've seen from this our...
1: musical. That seems <laughs> that seems like a <laughs> difficult prospect. The no it's... touching. <laughs>
3: It's it's tricky, and I am really wondering what the final product will be. Um, but I will say the director has a lot of great ideas, and she's up for it. And also, there's nothing else for these kids to do this summer um, because everybody's canceled everything. So, we're, you know, they're game to try. We're gonna try, and then inevitably, when Virginia goes back to phase one in August or whatever, and we've got to shut it all down, we're just gonna try to produce some sort of online something. The rights are really difficult with things like In the Heights. Um, it's much easier with original material that you can do whatever you want with broadcasting. So I don't know. It could still all fall apart. Um, so it's pretty exciting. Well, it's, <laughs> and,
1: I've been astonished because seemingly from like week one of um, lockdown, at least here in New York, what I thought would be the sort of lagging aspects of theater and dance and and voice in terms of being able to adapt uh, have actually been the like advanced indicators and the most innovative about these things uh i've i've now attended a couple of uh, virtual plays and especially one that was um Uh, well perhaps more attuned to it how i learned to drive paula vogel's play Mm. um, Mm -hmm. was incredibly moving and you know not in the ways that an in-person performance would be but in new unexpected ways in ways in which the isolation of the characters actually performed an extra affect to what was Mm -hmm. going on in the play uh so i found myself very struck by it and also by the you know the constant scenes that we now see of people doing choreography virtually doing song virtually and so it's been actors performers directors who've been really really innovative on this end of it
3: well i work mostly with teens and um people who are younger than teens So over the winter, I directed um, a project that we called DIY Musical, um, like do-it-yourself musical, (laughs) with a group of 10 teenagers. I'd say most of them were 13. Certainly median age was 13. And um, we we were just about to perform when Virginia went into lockdown. So we had all these songs that we had written and we were sort of it was a it was workshop so we were sort of just starting to stage the songs anyway and our story was pretty loose it was kind of like songs connected by a story rather than a story that we had written songs for if that makes sense mm-hmm. um so which which was an interesting part of the process like <laughs> how do you write a musical and there are lots of ways to approach it but that's the way we we wrote songs and then we sort of figured out how they worked together afterwards but um Anyway, all this to say, we really wanted to have some way to kind of memorialize this process and, and have something for them to share with their families and friends. So we made like a gallery of links to different kinds of like videos. And then some of them just recorded themselves. So we sort of had sound files as well. And here's the whole point of all this. I didn't know how to do any of this. But the, but the children knew. <laughs> like, yeah. And what they didn't know, they, they taught themselves very quickly. They used the Googles, and then they just figured things out like magic. Um, so it was almost like you could be an old-time manager and be like, here, employees, here's the goal, and you get there, and I'll see you in a week, <laughs> you know, a little, because – the children are amazing. The children I, I are our future. Be,
1: <laughs> they are. I found this to be the same with my experience going, going on technological teaching uh, for this, the rest of this semester was that I really feared all the ways in which our learning would be stymied and, and overly mediated by technological problems. And, um, and whatever we encountered, students already knew how to fix it. Or they could learn at such a speed greater than mine. Yes. It was like, you know, my jogging. Uh, you know, locally in, in the woods versus the flash. Um, and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, By the time I would think, oh, I wonder if we can fix that. So Ten people already had a fix, like ready to go. And it just it has so endorsed my love of um, in particular college students, but young mm-hmm. people and their ingeniousness with ways of dealing with regular problems in their lives That we don't give them credit for it and then in yeah. something like this all of a sudden we see how how good they are
3: and i i might be incorrect about this i don't you know not all college students or like not all teenagers like i don't really know exactly how each individual teen feels about being in a situation like this but it seemed to me to bring a really great dynamic to our relationship like and now the master becomes the student like it was true <laughs> intergenerational learning and problem solving and cooperation. And it was super rewarding. And I mean I I loved the product and I thought they were really proud of it. So that's my basic like moving forward in this sphere. I'm I I know adults are also good at things and probably younger adults are great at technology, but I am really delighted to be working with younger with kids Mm -hmm. because I think they are fearless and come to the table as it were with a lot of really interesting ideas and and solutions and um it's just fun it makes going to work that much more fun for me i'm learning a lot which is okay i enjoy learning learning is learning is fundamental <laughs>
1: Well, I um, have invited you here today in in part to be um, part of a two part summer reading series on the podcast, and I'm asking four different guests to come on and each take us through a particular genre that they think deserves our attention right now what do you think should be on our summer reading list? What aren't we paying attention to? Or what do you want to sort of highlight for us that we can um, kind of give a shout out to and maybe re-engage people's kind of sense of the vitalness of their summer reading time?
3: Well, I am calling this genre, which I stumbled into reading a bunch in a row kind of by accident, Um, but I'm calling it the tragic comic essay memoir by smart, funny women genre.
1: (laughs) So, and
3: I, I highly recommend engaging. This is actually a genre with many more authors than I will talk about today. But, um, I read in quick succession. Wow. No, thank you. Essays by the humor writer, Samantha Irby. It's actually her third collection of essays i believe um the witches are coming which is essays by opinion writer lindy west who writes for the new york times and she also wrote the memoir shrill um Mm -hmm. and so and then that got turned into a tv show there's a hulu adaptation of it that she's the executive producer of and um the third one is maybe you should talk to someone which is kind of a memoir it's memoirish and it's by psychotherapist Lori gottlieb who writes the dear therapist column for the Atlantic magazine?
1: What I would say, just from the authors that I recognize, is that most of these are incredibly funny, um, but talk about really serious and pretty upsetting topics. And what you know, what about the sort of form of these particular books makes coming to these topics um, invigorating for you, exciting?
3: Well, I will speak for myself personally and say um, that present company excluded, of course, because I adore this podcast and you, but I'm tired of listening to men. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Um, And what I'm even more tired of and just actually really never want to engage with again in life is men telling me about women Mm -hmm. And the way that women experience the world and what they think about their experiences and about things that have happened to their bodies um, or their minds. Um, And I'd say that that is what draws me to essays like this. I really enjoy reading the insights of smart, funny women who are going to tell me about things they've experienced and what they learned. Um, I find all three of them are pretty different. I mean, they're all sort of mid career, I'd say. So they're, they all are experienced writers at this point who have sort of a good, strong, robust back catalog of work, both in magazines and in books. But, um, but they're not necessarily, well, Lindy, now I should say Lindy West and Samantha Irby, I think our friends in real life and Samantha Irby actually contributed to the first season of show. So I guess they have a little more in common as writers than either of them do with Lori Gottlieb. But to me, what ties them all together is just this unwillingness to bog down in experiences that people might brand traumatic or um, too painful to engage with in a funny way or I don't know. They just don't, they talk about their lives the way they want to using the tone that feels appropriate to them. Um, without, mm, I don't know, just without wrapping themselves or their experiences in cotton wool in a way that it, it seems to me, women's stories can be presented when they're not presented by the people who <laughs> are telling the story about themselves, if that makes sense. It
1: Wow. That's a, beautiful way of um of coming to this phenomenon and of thinking about uh, women really taking control over their stories and not feeling like they need to be bound to the either the mood genre mm-hmm. style um that has been offered to them as what are the acceptable ways into women's stories and narratives and i think you you summed it so nicely do you think that the, I, I mean, really, essay seems to be as a, as a genre having another heyday. Um, mm. And do you think that there's to some extent the desire to read that form comes out of the Me Too movement and wanting to hear argumentative prose in a, Um, in a form that demands quite a lot from its, from its readership in this particular moment.
3: I would say, I mean, Lindy West sort of is the me too movement in some pretty interesting and important ways because she started the shout your abortion hashtag, um, which was a precursor to, I mean, it was right around the same time as me too gained a lot of momentum. Um, And, I, and I think that that's, it's part of what leads me to say I appreciate the way in which she defies societal expectations of how she ought to tell stories about her life. Um, because while she didn't enjoy having an abortion um, and didn't set out to have one and might not have chosen that path, she's like, and I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> I'm really glad I did. And I'm not ashamed of it. And it did wonderful things for my life. And it was the right choice for me. And I'm not ever going to back down from that just because society seems to think I should feel a certain way about having had an abortion. Um, And so I think that, you know, essays are not a new form. But I can't really imagine when I was my daughter's age when I was 16, I can't really imagine having voices like this to access Mm -hmm. i do think um we're at a really great time for people with more diverse points of view and more diverse life experiences to get their moment in the sun and get their place on the bandstand
1: that leads me to uh, a heavier topic but i don't think it we can ignore the fact that this podcast is being recorded during the time of protests in response to the murder of George Floyd and the way in which there is a collective roar from exactly those voices, marginalized voices, both um, literally cut off and um, metaphorically chopped out of our, of Mm. our culture. And, I am interested in in a sort of side way um, into that topic, thinking about how I have seen so many bookstores and authors posting a huge variety of what might loosely be called anti-racism texts to their social media accounts as one way of responding to this. Obviously, mm. also calling for very direct forms of action, immediate. Um, ways of supporting protesters and um, responding to uh, police inaction and brutality. But the fact that there is this sort of demand or desire for books to speak to these things in an edifying way and a way Mm -hmm. that kind of cracks open um, these issues that are Uh, for many people outside of their daily understanding and for others, the essence of their being on the planet. Um, So when... You know, you're thinking about the fact that this this moment is both kind of drawing out a need for those kind of of works. Um, do you find yourself wanting to kind of reach out for thing new things to read? Um, have you been been reading anything during this period that you've found valuable?
3: Well, I think that it's similar to my. Um hopefully it didn't sound too glib statement earlier that I'm really tired of listening to men. I think, um, people of color are way past being tired of listening to white people, um, Mm -hmm. tell them about their experiences and about, um, our culture or our country or the way our society works. Um, and I think just as I derive a great deal of pleasure and edification from reading women talking about their own lives. I feel a similar pull to talk, to hear people of color speak to me, those who are willing to take the energy to educate me. I am incredibly grateful. Um, and so, yeah, I, my daughter and I actually were just talking this morning about how difficult it is to feel that you have something meaningful to do. Um, in times like this. Um, And, you know, we talked about the various options for action that we see open to ourselves right now. And I was saying I think reading and educating yourself is a huge thing that you can do. there, there, There are many different ways to take action, and there isn't just one thing that you can do and just check a box and be like, Now I've done it. Um, But I I think that um, reading, the other thing that I have done in recent years is really tried to um, diversify my feed on social media um, to follow thinkers and writers who have really different backgrounds and different life experiences in their less formal, more kind of colloquial form online, selves online. It's it's a fascinating and incredible opportunity that social media gives us. Um, And I think it's just opened my mind so much um, to the day-to-day realities that were not accessible to me as a white middle-aged woman of incredible economic and educational privilege. Um, So, yeah, I think taking the responsibility upon yourself and the onus upon yourself to seek out reputable sources of information about things you know nothing about. It's definitely a great way to respond.
1: I, I agree completely. And I feel like it has been, um, for me in many ways, it has been bookstore owners and general managers, um, and authors who have basically, Created these syllabi mm. um, via which you can locate those voices you didn't know you should have been listening to the whole time, um, and allow access in a way that I might not have been able to diversify who was on my feed prior to that. Yeah, um, but to to make changes and to read new things, uh, both my local bookstore, Buffalo Street Books, and uh, the amazing. Um, bookstore owned by Emma Straub, Books Are Magic, have mm. put out these just incredible lists, both of books to be reading, books to be reading to kids, but also black-owned bookstores to be supporting yes. with your with your purchases. Um, and these are all kind of amazing under the the radar ways of of having um, uh, an ability to to do something active which I think mm-hmm. we're all dying to do at this point. And sometimes it feels very far away.
3: Yes, I was going to say I got a copy of Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist from New Dominion, which is my local indie bookstore. Um, it was uh, featured it, along the entire window display. You can't go in. You have to call and order and they bring things to the door. But the entire window display is um, anti, an anti-racist reading list, um, which very good for the time for sure. Yeah. Good for any time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, good for any time, but we, <laughs> yeah. some, for whatever reason require horrible trauma to to make right. it clear how important it is. You you live somewhere that maybe has as an exquisite kind of painful understanding of of this as as almost anywhere as, you know, Charlottesville was the site of one of the earliest kind of backlashes against white supremacy and then the correlated congregations of violent white extremists leading to the the murder of a anti-racist woman. Um, and I wondered what it was like having that kind of visibility to the racism that undergirds the society in your own backyard.
3: Well, I have so many feelings still about, um, the events of August 11th and 12th, 2017. It's just, it's there, it's hard to sum it up in a tidy kind of soundbite. I think, um, it's still like crazy raw here. Um, I, I, and I wouldn't say necessarily, especially for people who grew up here because I am not, you know, I can't, I can't say that. I don't know if that's true, but I grew up here, (laughs) and for me, it's incredibly raw. And I think part of it is that I felt like there was this little tang, or maybe it was more than just a tang, of Schadenfreude to the coverage of the events from outside of Charlottesville because we had been on so many sort of top 10 like happiest cities in America or Charlottesville, Virginia, like top 10 prettiest college towns, blah, blah. And then there's this little like, oh, how the mighty have fallen, like weird element to the coverage, like, oh, how could this have happened in liberal, like beautiful Charlottesville? But growing up in Charlottesville and having been at the public schools all the way through my education, I did not think Charlottesville did not have major opportunities for growth. I had no illusions about the fact that we had huge problems with racial inequity, um, and enormous cultural opportunities, you know, things that needed to be addressed um, from affordable housing to access to resources, to uh, mortality rates, to maternal mortality. You know, we, our our demographics and our statistics are not pretty. And um, I mean, that, that says... was true before 2017 and it's, unfortunately still true now. Um, so I felt ragey about the coverage on top of just feeling so, um, deeply disturbed and upset, um, by the events. I, I definitely would say that being marched upon by an army. Mm, of
1: and they were that they were yes. an army fully it was an
3: armed force we were invaded armed. by an armed force and um it was wild it was absolutely it boggled the mind
1: and notably um, you didn't have the army being called upon to come sort of save the save the city in the way that the the President is kind of shaking the the fist of the armed forces at the protesters who are ninety percent peacefully protesting the murder of a unarmed man right versus... well,
3: he didn't call on the armed forces when the armed forces were marching on the Michigan State House mm, I mean,
2: yeah,
3: yeah, I mean, he only calls. Well, and he was president then too, but he, it wasn't just him. It was also our local and state leadership. Um, We had really good warning that there was going to be this disturbance and the conventional wisdom was ignore them and don't engage. And um, it it won't turn into any kind of big problem. Um, And the police and military elements that were here to the extent that they were scrambled at all were not scrambled on behalf of the peaceful protesters. Mm -hmm. It was, it was, um, it was, a a, just an incredibly disappointing. I mean, disappointing is not the strong enough word. Anyway, it was, it was a, a real eye opener for people like me, even people who knew we had problems in Charlottesville. Um, it was beyond, anything I could have imagined happening here. And I would say to me, the only good thing that's come out of that time for me personally is that I have so much more concrete knowledge in the wake of those events. Um, We've done a lot of community soul searching and a lot of voices that were previously, as you were saying earlier, sort of been chopped out of the narrative or turned the volume way down on those complainers um have been finally given their due and i've learned so much about the jim crow era here about historically you know thriving vibrant black neighborhoods that were raised to make way for our downtown um at the behest of white business owners i learned the history of those ding dang confederate statues which have Just caused us so no end of grief, Um, (laughs) but partly that they were put up in the 1920s um, by a white supremacist. So they really had nothing to do with the Civil War. They were actually put up as you know they were meant to be intimidating, and indeed they have been. Um, So the knowledge that came out of it is not the bad part. There were lots of bad parts, but I feel like as a community we have a much Clear sense of what we need to do. And we have a black mayor and we have a whole new comprehensive housing plan. Um, we have a new program called unity days that has events all year round. Um, you know, I mean, people are just trying and trying and trying lots of different things. And it is really nice to see them making so much effort uh, that we are making a lot of effort as a community.
1: I can only hope that something like that sort of self-reflection and deep dive into the layers of systematic failure of particularly black people in the United States, but minority communities in general will happen in the wake of the, the George Floyd killing. But I have no I have no such optimism, but I'll I'll keep my pessimistic hope um running nevertheless
3: i do think so often in the wake of these things it's like two steps forward three steps back so we'll see um i honestly the thing i have the most hope for and i understand this is not going to solve all of these problems or make them magically go away but if we could just have a different president i would feel great about that that would be awesome so if at least somehow the election is positively impacted by how spectacularly bad he is like what a terrible job of leadership he has done in these twin crises of our Mm -hmm. 2020 i that's all that's all i can hope i just hope it boomerangs on him
1: i'm there with you I'm going to end us um, today on a, a lighter note for sure <laughs> uh, and ask you what you're reading now um, and maybe for distraction and fun, like what gives you a little bit of escape um, in our in our double crisis moment.
3: Well, I am reading Katherine Heiney. Well, her last name is spelled H-E-I-N-Y. I've never heard it pronounced, but I would assume it's pronounced Heiney, but maybe it's pronounced Haney. I couldn't say for sure. Um, she's a novelist. She's actually from the Washington, D.C. area. Um, I had read her book Standard Deviation, which has an autistic character Um And I mean, I don't know that there's a whole lot I would have say said, but prior to reading it, could have made autism seem like a funny, light topic. (laughs) But the way this character is integrated into the family—that's the center of the um, book—it's super delightful Um, to me. And again, like I, I, I'm not going to speak for every single person. I have some firsthand. Um, knowledge of autism and the kind of difficulties that it can breed in a in a family, and also the opportunities and wonderful things about it um, about neuroatypical kids. But um, in any case, I enjoy standard deviation a lot, and she has a um, book of stories out more recently called Single Single Carefree Mellow, which I'm in the middle of right now, and <laughs> just it is delightful. I, it's something that I'm reading right before bed, and I go to bed. Sp- smiling and then i have you know at least one dream that's not about like being sucked into a whirlpool or <laughs> i don't know i was talking with a friend about our crazy quarantine dreams and they're all like something's on a super high shelf and you're reaching 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 and then it falls and like knocks you out or <laughs> no. anyway um so I, I when i read these lighthearted and funny and quirky um smart well-written characters and their stories right before bed, I have better dreams. So I recommend.
1: That sounds like exactly the kind of medicine I need (laughs) pre-sleep. So I'm for sure going to be ordering that straight away. Well, Miller, it's been really wonderful to get a chance to talk to you for so many reasons, but thank you for coming on the podcast and I hope you'll come back again in the future.
3: It's my pleasure. And I also wanted to thank you for giving some visibility to community theaters and (laughs) all of their travails in this time. I know this is a podcast about books and, you know, the twin loves of my life are books and theater. So this has truly been a delightful opportunity for me, too.
1: Thanks so much. Bye bye. Bye. Well, that's it for this first of two summer reading episodes. In the coming weeks, I'm committing to thinking more seriously about how to make this podcast a space for honoring and promoting Black creative artists and writers of color more broadly. Being purposeful in this way will make the pleasure of reading for this program richer and more lasting. For me... And I hope for you, too. And finally, I would encourage you to rate the podcast on iTunes as it greatly enhances the reach of the show. You can also go to the website burnedbybooks.com and email directly to ask for book recommendations at any time. Thanks again. This has been Burned by Books.